The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. When you get there. In Hebrews chapter 13, we're looking, we've been looking in our study on God's covenants. We have come now to the eternal covenant, and we're trying to um, flesh out this. And there's, we, we have really only one specific reference in Scripture to this, um, to this eternal covenant. Okay, Only one specific statement that tells us uh, anything about this. But there's a lot in this verse. And so let's read these two verses here. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, he might equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom is glory forever or into the ages of the ages. Amen. So we started last week by looking at this new covenant. We're kind of taking this piece by piece. I was going to kind of try to cover all of this just in one study in one week. And the more I looked at this, I thought that wouldn't really do justice to how loaded these two verses are. So last week we took time and we looked at the first phrase in there, the God of peace, and the significance of understanding that God is a God of peace and what that means for us. Every passage that we looked at last week in which the scriptures tell us that God is the God of peace and what did we see? Six times, right? You remember that? Six times that he's called the God of peace in the New Testament. What was also going on in that larger context of each statement? You remember? Why was it important to be reminded that God is a God of peace? Between the Jews and the Gentiles, there were two Okay, there's a conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Let's just take that idea and let's just back off of it. What's the larger problem then? You mentioned you kind of mentioned the word there. Getting along with other believers. Every one of these statements has to do with believers that are in some sort of a conflict with each other. Believers that aren't getting along. They're not looking out for each other. And in the context of Hebrews, you have, well, who's he writing in Hebrews? What's, what's the title of the book? Hebrews. And so it's a book being written to Christians from what background? Jewish background. And some of these believers now, because of persecution, because property has been seized, and all of these things, because they're being excluded from the temple, which we'd look at that and say, no big deal. But it was a big deal to them. Because remember, if you go to Acts 21... Remember James makes that statement in Acts 21 to Paul? You see how many there are from the circumcision, or how many Jews there are that believe, and yet they're all still zealous of the law. So here, at that point, we're, we're closing in on 20 years after Christ died and rose again and ascended on high, that you still have these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They're still, they're still um, what am I, the word I'm trying to look for, they're still actively, there, we'll go with that, actively keeping the law. They're going to the temple. They're still involved in the sacrificial system. And I've told you this before. We've been over this in Bible studies. The sacrificial system was never about how a person got saved in the Old Testament. 
The sacrificial system is how you were clean to come and approach God at the tent and then later at the temple to be able to talk to him. Jim kind of talked about that in his class this morning downstairs about having uncleanness and impurity. And if you had a person that had it had a flow of some sort where stuff was oozing in whatever way. It sounds gross, right? But that was, if, and a lot of that was very personal, right? We talk about that and that's very personal. We don't usually blab that stuff to our, even to our friends. But those things made you unclean. And if you were unclean because of that, you were not supposed to. Okay, good. You were not supposed to go up to the, tab to, to the tabernacle or to the temple, okay? So I'm just trying to paint this picture for us. I know I've probably done this many times, but I'm trying to give this picture. And because of this, because now these Jews are being excluded from all of these things, and they've had their property seized and they're ostracized, and again, you don't get this. Because this, I actually was reading somebody else recently, a, a book that I'm reading, and he was talking about the fact that you and I don't appreciate today how many Christians there are worldwide in the 2,000-year history of the church that have actually been fired from their jobs or lost their jobs, and nobody, everybody refuses to hire them because they identify with Jesus Christ. It's been really common in history for people that the only jobs you can get are, well, since this is on my mind, Maybe digging cesspool holes for outhouses and things like that. That's the only job. And it's a job. But let's say you were an accountant, and now nobody will hire you to keep their books. And the only job you can find, and your back isn't suited for it because you haven't been digging holes for the last 20 years, is to dig holes for people. <laughs> Guess you're going to have to get in shape, huh? But that's happened, and you and I don't always appreciate that. We always figure, well, you can just go out and you can find a job. Well, what if people find out that you're a Christian? They're like, you're out. Today, today if Josh found out somebody is of a religion that he does not approve of, Josh and Ben can't say, hit the street. They can't do that. That's illegal, right? Yeah, you can't do that on the job. And you're not supposed to show favoritism and say, oh, because you are of a certain religion, I'm going to hire you and give special perks. You're not supposed to, technically not supposed to do that either. But you know what? That goes on worldwide and it has through the history of the world. Because they didn't have modern labor laws that we have today that protect people. And so these people now cut off from all of this. And again, what would it be like if all of a sudden every Sabbath, not Sunday, because they didn't, they didn't have a Sunday. They met on Sabbath. They met on Saturdays. And on Saturdays, they didn't do any work. If every Sabbath, you all went over to Mama's house, and you all got together there, and Mama fixed this dinner. I don't actually think they ever did that. And the reason I'm going to say this is because you didn't cook on the Sabbath. <laughs> but let's say you had prepared food in advance on Friday, and then you all come and you sit down together, and you spend the day sitting together, and you've got this family thing going on. And now all of a sudden the family, you can't, you're not welcome here because you believe in Jesus Christ. Don't darken my door. And again, you and I, most of us probably don't appreciate what that's like to be ostracized from your family because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Peg and I had friends that were in college, came, off to, came out to college. They got saved. They heard the gospel there at the university where we were attending. They went home and told their families. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And they were going to a church, but a church that taught them salvation by works and by baptism and such, and their parents. Remember one of our friends, his dad actually told him, you are dead to me. You are dead to me. 
And his father, for a long, long, long time, would not talk to him. If he went home to visit, his mother would visit with him, but his dad wouldn't say, wouldn't have anything to do with him because he had left their faith, <laughs> as it were. And so this kind of background, understanding all of this, because of this, some of these Christians have decided, you know what, I know I'm saved. I believe in Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. So I'm just going to pull out of the church and I'm just going to go over and live like a regular Jew at the temple and everything will be great. But that's not the way you do it. And that's not the way God has designed it for us. God has designed us to live together as a body of Christ, getting together and functioning here, not withdrawing because it works out better for us. And all of that to say, when you talk about the God of peace in the book of Hebrews, it's a very big deal because are these believers having peace if they're parting ways with other believers? Does that create hard feelings? Does that hurt people? If you get up and say, I'm not going to come to church here anymore, and maybe you've got to, I'm sure if, if you, if you ch come and tell me or tell somebody else I'm not going to come to church here anymore, I'm sure you have a reason. Maybe good, may not be good. I don't know. But I can guarantee you, I've had, we've had lots of people over the years that have said, we're going to go to church someplace else. And every time they do it, I've never had a time that I've gone, yay, oh, good for you. Every time it's just like, it hurts. It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts when somebody doesn't choose, the, the, for some reason, I don't know, they feel they're going to get better fellowship someplace else than with us. And you're always like, how, how did we let you down? And, you know. So you can see how that would affect these people and how it maybe could, could create hard feelings or people that are hurt, things like this. All of this is a background to understanding the God of peace. This is all review, but I'm just trying to put this in perspective. So now let's dive into the next phrase. And you might think, well, you should have saved this phrase for a couple weeks because Easter's going to come upon us or Resurrection Sunday to be more proper. But we're going to take it now because remember, as believers... We should celebrate the resurrection every day of the year because every day of the year our Savior lives. Every day of the year he sits at the Father's right hand and every day of the year because he lives, we live and we sit there too. So it ought to be something every day that we appreciate, not just save for one day of year. And so he says in the next phrase, Hebrews 13, verse 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, uh, through the blood of the eternal covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to look at the shepherd of the sheep. We're saving that for the next study. We're simply going to be looking at this brought up from the dead. First thing that we're going to say as we look at this idea here of brought him up from the dead, this expression in the Greek, just to make this clear, is literally, it's not brought up from a state of death. That would be a different word in the Greek. That word that's translated dead here is not, does not mean a state of death. It's the word nekros, which means a dead individual. And here it's plural, meaning he came out from dead ones. In other words, when Jesus died, where did he go? Scriptures tell us he went into the heart of the earth. The scriptures tell us he descended into Hades. Hades for us is equivalent to hell, the way most people think, but that's not true. Hades is simply a place that the Old Testament called Sheol. In the Greek, they called it Hades, but it was a place where the dead went until Christ came and freed those who were believers. So everybody's there, but they're separated. And we're not going to, we've done those studies before, we're not going to deal with that today, but there's a separation. So it's not like they're all mingling down there. They're believers. In fact, Abraham said that. There's a gulf. 
a chasm, literally in the Greek, it's a chasm in the Greek that separates those who are resting in Abraham's bosom. We don't appreciate that, resting in Abraham's bosom. I kind of do this, Peggy will tell you, I do this in the evenings when I'm tired and we sit in our chair and maybe we're watching TV. I lean over and I rest my head up against her like that, like this, and then sometimes all of a sudden she says, you fell asleep, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> You're kind of resting. I kind of lean over on her like that. That's what that idea is. And you and I don't appreciate that in their that in their culture because they didn't have sofas. Well, some people did, but most people didn't. You'd sit on the floor on pillows, and when you would rest, you'd lean up against each other. And it was a kind of a this is the way you'd sit around and visit, and you'd lean against each other and you'd relax. And that was the picture of what Hades was for believers. It was a place to rest and relax. They're not out of it, but they're resting. And then there's a place where those who are not believing, such as you have the story in Luke 16, where you have people that are in torments. He says, the rich man says, I am in torments, plural. So when he's talking about coming out from among dead ones, Jesus descends into this place. And when he resurrects, he comes out from a place where dead ones are. Scriptures tell us elsewhere when he did that, he led those that were held captive, those who were believing dead ones, he led them captive and took them up to, the, up to the third heaven, to the edge of the third heaven. I realize I'm filling in a lot of details here, but I'm just trying to give you the perspective on what he says when he brought him up, or that the Lord or God of peace brought him up from, out from among dead ones. R says up from the dead, literally out, it's in the Greek, it's ek, out from among dead ones is what he's doing here. So as we look at this, we're going to take some time, and I'm not going to look at a whole bunch of New Testament verses on the resurrection. I'm going to stick mostly to the book of Hebrews and a bunch of statements here. But there are a couple of statements outside of Hebrews that I want to kind of begin with one and I kind of want to close off with one today. And we're going to go over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We'll be right back to Hebrews in a moment. But in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, I want to go back up to verse 4 for a minute. Verse 7 is where we want, to, want to, to get to. But in verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the law is not how you are righteous today. Obeying the law, obeying the Ten Commandments, that is not how you are righteous. Christ ended that for you. For you. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, he shall live by that righteousness. That was the way it was under the law. You had to keep the righteousness of the law, and then you could live. And live didn't mean live eternally or have eternal life. It meant you breathe the air another day. Because remember, out of the Ten Commandments, seven of them, seven of the Ten Commandments, you died if you broke them. You were to be stoned. Two of those additional commandments... If you stole a person or if you bore false witness against a person and they would have died for your false witness, you were put to death for that. And so death is what brought. If you obeyed the law, however, if you obeyed the law, guess what? Well, then you could go on living. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks like this. And he's going to play off of an Old Testament text. A lot of people think this is an exact quotation. This is not an exact quotation. This is Paul playing off a quotation in the Old Testament, but he's playing with the words, making an application for you and I in the modern context, not of the Old Testament text, but of the truth of what 
grace does for us with righteousness today. So, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who's going to ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. When Christ came into this world and became a man, who, who did that? Who made him come down? Did one of you get voted to be the one to go up there and say it's time to come down here? No. No. That was God the Father said, it's time. The calendar, here it is. It's time for you to ascend. And the Father and the Son came down here then and became human. Or that righteousness based on faith, it, it also does not say who's going to descend into the abyss. That's another word for, for part of this this, this place called Hades, who's going to descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Again, who, who among mankind was elected to go and resurrect Jesus from the dead, to actually go down there and get him? Any of you? No. That is to bring Christ up out from among dead ones. The whole point of this, the reason he's saying this thing is the righteousness is by faith does not ask you to do something that only God can do. And it's probably one of the biggest struggles that you and I as Christians have is we're always trying to do what God's already done or what God can or only God can do. And he says that's the righteousness from faith. It doesn't ask to try to do what only God can do. It does not operate like that. That is not the way it goes. He says, what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And he's, so he's talking about this good news. What is it? When, when you give the gospel to an unsaved person, what is the one thing they're supposed to do? What? They're supposed to believe. They're supposed to believe that Christ actually died for their sins. And he was buried and he rose again. And if they believe, the promise that Peter and Paul both attached to it in the book of Acts when they're preaching the gospel, is that a person would be forgiven. That's the promise. It doesn't say, clean up your life, and you'll be okay with God. It doesn't say, join a church, and you'll be okay with God. It doesn't say, go get baptized, and you'll be okay with God. It says, believe. He says, that's the righteousness. God's already done the work. All you are asked to do, all we ask anyone to do, God's actually the one that asks it, we're just a, a mouthpiece for it, is we're just communicating that a person is to believe. Okay, but the significance of that is the raising of Christ out from among dead ones, that's something only God can do. And of course, our verse that we started with, Hebrews 13, 20, says God of peace is the one that raised Christ out from among dead ones. He did this. So now let's go over to the book of Hebrews and let's look at some statements. And some of these are, most of these aren't going to use the word resurrection or raised from the dead or anything like that but the resurrection is involved. So Hebrews chapter 1. By the way, that last verse we were just in in Romans chapter 10 and verse 7, where did a person have to go to get Christ out from among dead ones? Where would they have had to go? Hades. Hades, down to the abyss. So you had to go down there and bring him up here, which tells us at that time, where did a person go when they died? <coughs> Hades. False assumption that most Christians have is they think everybody through all history, when they die, they immediately whoo, fly with the angels up there to heaven. Nope. That's true for us. But it wasn't true in the Old Testament. They had to wait until Christ died and rose again before they could do that. So they were down there waiting. And they weren't in misery. There's no pain. 
They're down there. They're resting. Remember Abraham's bosom. They're, it's like they're leaning up against a person. It's a place to recline. But now we come to Hebrews chapter 1. Keep that in mind, what we just said. And you notice, I'm going to go, uh, let's go to verse 1 and just kind of read down through this. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. By the way, the Son is not a secondary God. He's not a lesser God. He is equal God, but that's not the main point. He kind of gets that in the context. In fact, just in a few verses, God's going to call him God. God's going to call the Son God, not a God. Anyway, we could go through and spend a lot of time demonstrating that, but notice in verse 3, for he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. I have people that tell me I look like my dad, and I can see it. I look like my dad, and my dad looks a little bit like his dad. And uh, I remember my aunt when she was still living and I hadn't talked to her in seven years and she goes, oh my goodness, I would have known who you were just listening to your voice on the phone. You sound like your dad. So, you know, so we have this, but I'm not the exact imprint of my dad. Because why? Because I stopped at 5'10 and my dad made it to 6'1 and I was always a little bitter about that because I was thought I was going to make the six foot mark at least. So I'm not the exact imprint of my father. And I just say that, that even a son or a daughter for that matter. Hopefully daughters don't look completely like their dads because they probably wouldn't like the beard. No, anyway, <laughs> break a little humor in there, just kind of break the moment for us. But back to the main thing. When Jesus Christ came, he is the exact representation of his nature because he, he is absolutely God and he's completely equal with the Father. And so he's exactly that representation. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made a purification for sins, how did he make a purification for sins? What did he have to do? He had to die. He had to die first. Then he was buried. Then he was raised again. And the book of Hebrews is going to tell us this. When he ascends on high, he actually goes in and the purification is applied when he gets to heaven into the what, for lack of a better way to put it, the heavenly throne room. And he goes in there and he says when he did that, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that imply when it says he sat down at the right hand? Remember, what happened to a person in the Old Testament when they died? Where'd they go? He went to Hades. Jesus went there because we just read that in Romans. He went to the abyss and he needed to be resurrected out of the abyss. What happened when he rose again? He ascended on high and he sat down at the Father's right hand. This is a statement about resurrection. Paul doesn't have to say, oh, he was resurrected from the dead first. He doesn't have to, because he knows that his readers will know this. These are believers. They've believed in the resurrection. These aren't unbelieving Jewish people. These are Jewish believers. They're just having a problem with where they're going to stick with the church and fellowship there or withdraw and go over here and just hang out with the Jews to make life easier for themselves. But this is a resurrection statement here. Turn with me to chapter 2, Hebrews 2, verse 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, But we do see him, again referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels. See, that's from God's perspective. What are we? We're a little lower than the angels. The angels, angels don't have the limitations we do. 
They, they don't really have bodies. Jim was kind of talking about this. They can appear in bodies, real bodies that can eat, but that's not their normal way of existence. So he says he was a little lower than the angels, <clears throat> namely Jesus, because of the suffering and death, he was crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God, he might taste death forever. And he tasted death for the whole world, by the way. This is one of those good verses that tell us Christ didn't just die for those who are saved. He died for everybody, whether they believe that and enjoy the benefit of it or not. He, he did die for everybody. But it says he was crowned with glory and honor. Did that happen at the moment of his death while he's hanging on the cross? No. In fact, the scripture says that that death was very dishonorable. It was a horrible death, the scriptures describe it. There was not a glory to it. And he was buried. The being crowned with glory and honor has to do with when he was resurrected from the dead. So again, this is a statement about resurrection. Your Savior not only was resurrected, but when he was resurrected in the realm of that human nature. Remember, he can't die as God. That's why he became man. Because you can't put God to death. So he becomes man, becomes like us, so that he can suffer in our place and die in our place. But also then in that human nature, he's crowned with glory and honor in the resurrection. Does everybody get that? I think it's pretty obvious. I, I think it is. If it's not, say it's not obvious. I need help. Okay, so let's move on down in this same chapter down to verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. Isn't that what we're made of? Right? Okay. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now it says he died, but if, just, if Jesus just died like we died, would that deliver you from the fear of death? No, I would look at it and I'd say, well, the one that came into the world, he died in my place and he stayed dead. Man, what's my hope? But it's because Jesus died and then having died, he did what? He resurrected. It doesn't tell us in this verse, but clearly these people would understand. He resurrected and by doing that, he what? He delivered those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And we've talked about this many times. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should not be fearing death. If you're afraid of death, you need to stop, start thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for you. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he says, I'm pulled between two things. One of them is the desire to depart and to go to be with him. In other words, Paul says, "My first thing, I'd just as soon die and go home. But he says the other pull is that I, I, need to, I feel like I need to stick around and help you guys some more. And Paul said that the selfish thing to do would be to go home. Because he says dying is very much better. <laughs> that's really horrible English, but that's a good representation of what he says in Greek. It is very much better. But he says, well, for your sake, I should stick around if he had a choice. So the whole point is, for you and I, there's no reason for us to fear death. If you spend your life trying to breathe the air one more day, struggling to fight to stay here one more day, you need to stop and say, hey, I'm willing to go. When God, in fact, you know what the whole thing is? If you're trying to fight to live one more day, if God's going to take you home, you're going to go home. And I think we all know that. So why fight that? 
That doesn't mean we're all going to go line up on a cliff and jump off, or we're all going to go up to I-90 and jump off in front of traffic. That's not what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to go home before the time that he's planned for us. But we ought to be able to have an attitude where we don't have to live in fear, trying to do everything to breathe this air one more day, if that's what God wants for us. And that's because we have a Savior that died and rose again. Let's move on to our next one here. Let's go into chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews 4.14. Now, the next set of these that we're going to be looking at, many of them, not all of them, but a lot of these are going to reference Jesus Christ as our high priest. And so in 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has what? Passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession or that to which we agree. And he says, we have a Savior. When it says he passed through the heavens, did he do that when he was dead? No, because when they died, they, at that time, went down to the abyss. Where's he going? Up through the heavens. He's going back where only God goes. He's passing through all of that. Again, it's a reference to him being alive. So we need to know that we have a high priest that, even though he died in our place, he remains alive today. And always living up there. We're going to see another verse that's going to tell us this. Up there where... It, let's put it this way, where death cannot affect him. Now, it's not saying our death can't affect him. Scripture does tell us that our, our death can affect him, that he, you know, when we go through suffering and such like that, he feels that. But there's a point and a purpose that he has in all that. And he's actually the one with the keys of that, which is another, a whole other study. But turn to chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. He says that we are able at the end of verse 18... At the end of verse 18, we're able to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul. Remember, it's our soul. It's your emotions getting battered back and forth by all the circumstances. By, could you imagine how your soul would hurt if your mama doesn't want you to come over and have dinner with them anymore because now you believe in that Jesus? If your employer says, you're not welcome here anymore, you're out of a job, how would that hurt? And then you can't, you go up and down the street and you knock on all the doors and nobody wants to hire. You mad that your soul would be in turmoil over this, wouldn't it? Wouldn't your emotions? Brooklyn, if your mom told you you weren't welcome in the house anymore, would that hurt? Yeah, see, it would hurt. Yeah, she's, she was looking right at me. That's why I asked her. See, it would hurt. That would hurt. And so he says, we have a hope as an anchor for our soul. It's going to anchor our soul so our soul isn't getting battered back and forth by all of these things. It's sure and steadfast, meaning that anchor is really sunk where it's supposed to be. It's not going to move. One that is entered in the veil. This is all image right out of Judaism where the priest had this veil, this big, thick veil. Some people have estimated that it may have been as much as four inches thick by the time you look at all the material they put into it. And they had to pull that veil aside and he went into that back room one time a year, one day a year, twice, once for himself and then for the people. And one time a year, he went and entered directly into the presence of God where over here is the Ark of the Covenant and he sprinkled some blood on the top of that, first for his own sins and then he came in and sprinkled again for the sins of the people. And he only did that once a year. But he says that was a veil. He pulled that. Well, he says Jesus has entered in the veil. But he's not entered the veil of the 
physical building that sat on top of the mountain in Jerusalem, he's entered the veil, as it were, in the heavenly tabernacle, which the Apostle Paul is going to tell us about later in the book of Hebrews, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he is, Christ Jesus is our high priest, and he's entered into that place where he is directly in the presence of God the Father. That's why scripture says when we talk to the Father, we talk to him through Jesus Christ. And these people would have really understood that because you and I think that people just walked up to the temple and normally just prayed. And some people, I always think this when you read about Hannah over in the book of 1 Samuel, that she comes up there and she's down on the steps below the temple. And Eli, the priest, is sitting on his stool and he's looking down and he sees, if you walked up, if you saw somebody sitting on the steps out in front of the church and you came up there and they were down and you saw their mouth moving, what would you assume they probably were doing? Probably, we would assume they're praying. Eli does not assume that. Eli looks at him and he goes, are you drunk? I don't hear any words coming out of your mouth. Because normally you didn't just come up in there and do that. Normally you came up there and you walked up to the priest and said, I want to say this to God. Here it is. And the priest then would go inside the tent. He couldn't go in that back room, but he could stand before that veil. And he would tell God, this is what Hannah wants. But Hannah didn't think that she could do that, and so Hannah on the steps prays. We can do that at any time, no matter where we are. We don't have to go to a building. You don't have to come to this building, and you don't have to come to me. You, every moment of every day, are in Christ, and you get to turn, as it were, to your left and speak to the Father because God says you're always in Christ. That's our access. So you can be laying in bed in the middle of the night, and you wake up. and You're, at, you're going to have a conversation with God laying in there in the middle of the night, and you don't have to make a noise. You don't have to wake up the person sleeping next to you by going, what are you doing? I'm praying. Could you do it quietly? <laughs> Not that she would say that. Well, she might if she wasn't sleeping well because of it. But you get the point. You don't have to do that. You can talk there anytime, anywhere. You can pray when you're leaning over in a hole, fixing a pipe for somebody. Seriously. In fact, that, well, that, I, that actually, I, I, I just have to share. I, I don't know this poem, but one of my professors when I was in seminary taught a, a class on biblical prayer communication. And it's about these people talking about the proper posture you take when you pray. And you know you have to pray like this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. And finally this one farmer in the prayer says, all I know is I was walking in the night, and I tripped and I fell, and I landed head down, head down in the bottom of the, this guy's well. And he says, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed was a standing on my head. <laughs> and it's just a good illustration that there's not a place on the planet that's better to pray. And there's not a position. We have this access to Jesus Christ has already entered there. And if we go and focus on he being resurrected and having entered, it anchors our soul. Let's move on to the next one. Chapter 7 and verse 8. Chapter 7 and verse 8, it says, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, but that, but in that case, one, he's referring to Lord Jesus Christ, he receives them of whom it is written that he lives on or lives uh, forever. He has this unchanging priesthood. In fact, if you look down in verse 16, and let's go to verse 15, it says, This is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become one not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of a, what does it say? Indestructible life. 
When, once Jesus rose again from the dead, he rose, he lives never to die again, Paul tells us over in the book of Romans. It's an indestructible life. That's a better priesthood. The problem being that the Old Testament priests kept dying off. So if you found a good priest, you probably you had corrupt priests. We know that. Eli's two sons were corrupt. So even if you found a good priest, what happens if you find that good priest and then he dies? Now I don't have a good priest to go anymore. And how do I know, trust that this guy's actually going to do it the way God said? Because you had corruption in the priesthood in the Old Testament. Let's look down in chapter 7 and verse 25. Let's go back up to verse, let's go back up to verse 23 and read what I just said here. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They kept dying. But he, referring to Lord Jesus Christ, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently or into perpetuity. Hence, also, he is able to save completely. This is talking about your maturity, is what he's talking about. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Your high priest, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is your high priest, it says he always lives, and he always makes intercession for you. And remember, intercession is not just, we pray sometimes, we say, oh God, I'm praying for, I'm praying for Jim. Jim maybe was having a rough day. I don't know, I don't know what's, what's up with Jim, but help, help Jim. You ever pray like that? Yeah, yeah, we all pray like that sometimes. We don't know what to pray. I'm married to her, and sometimes I can tell she's having an off day. And I don't know how to pray. I mean, God, I don't know. I mean, she, she hurts. Her back hurts. Her, her legs are bothering her tonight. I, and I don't know what to do. But God, I pray for her. See, the intercession's not that. Intercession's is, is Jesus Christ. It's always hitting on specifically what we need. Because remember, he's omniscient because he's God. So he knows exactly what you need. And he prays exactly for what you need. Not what you even think you need. Sometimes what you think you need and what he knows you need are different, right? And he prays specifically, but he always lives to be able to do that. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible that he does that. Look over in chapter 8 and verse 1. He says, now the sum of these things that have been said is that we have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We kind of already saw that over in chapter 1. This is talking about his resurrection. He's resurrected and he sat down there at the Father's right hand. The greatness of... Some of your Bibles have the majesty, mine has. It's a greatness. Uh, and he sits there in the heavens. Turn over to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20. Let's go over to verse 19. It says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence. And that word this is one of the words that Courtney was dealing with us at the Bible conference here a couple weeks ago. It's a word meaning boldness. It's a word in the Greek that meant freedom of speech. The ability to speak freely with God. Christians don't always appreciate that we can speak freely with God. God doesn't say, you have to speak in King James English. God doesn't say, oh, you can only, you can only talk to me about those things that I approve of you talking to me about. I always, think, I always read David in the Old Testament. And David was pretty darn honest that sometimes he's struggling with this stuff and he's pretty raw sometimes talking to God. Now, you and I have the ability to appreciate God's will better than David did. But you know what? When you're hurting and you're going through struggles, 
You think God doesn't know that? And if you're holding your tongue and you don't want to talk to God about those kind of things, you need to know he already knows them. You might as well just say, God, I'm struggling with this thing and I don't know what to do. And I'm at a loss. And I know you can handle this, but I... Do you get the point? And so he says, let us have this boldness of speech to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. And we've been over this before, so hopefully you remember this. But if you don't, that word that's translated new in the Greek means freshly slain. Because when normally if you slew something, it's just a matter of time before decay sets in and it rots and it's ill. But when Jesus suffered and died, there was never any decay that took place. And so he says, we come here, he says, he's freshly slain, but he's living. That seems like an oxymoron. How can you be freshly slain and be alive? Because Christ died on the cross and he rose again. And what he accomplished by his death is permanent and everlasting. And it is not tarnished and it doesn't have to be repeated next month or next week or next year. It's good once for all. We saw that in our first verse in Hebrews 1 today. He made one sacrifice for sin. He didn't have to make sacrifice again and again and again. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul argues for in Hebrews. If Christ were like the earthly sacrifices, then he would have had to suffer often. But no, he suffered once. So he says, we come, we come by a new and living way, which he inaugurated and initiated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have a veil that we enter. Remember the priest pulling that veil across to enter into the presence of God? Well, we do. It's the fact that on the throne at the right hand of the Father, let's illustrate it. Let me pretend I'm the Father. The Son's sitting right here. He's sitting in a real, resurrected, glorified human nature, and God counts us to be in him. So it's his flesh. Is, he says it's like a counterpart to the veil in the Old Testament. We come and it's like pulling the veil aside to step into the presence of God when we come there and recognize who we are in Christ. Kind of get the picture? How he, how he is like the veil? You get that? I hope, I hope you get that. Okay. Turn to chapter 12 and verse 2. Chapter 12 and verse 2. He says, he's got an image from verse 1 about you have this witness to all these witnesses of people that have witnessed to living by faith or having acted out of faith. And so you are supposed to run. And when you're running, you need to look off to the end goal. Where's the finish line? Well, for us, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or the originator and the perfecter or the one that matures our, the, our faith, Excuse me, for who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, the point is, if you think your suffering is hard, you just remember your Savior did this. It's not that he's, it's not like, it's not like he prances, it's not like he's hanging on the cross going, oh, there's nothing. I'm God. I don't feel a thing. He suffered in a human nature. He felt it. He experienced what it was to be shamed by men. And in the realm of his human nature, he even experienced what it was like to be cut off from the Father and the Spirit for three hours. And so he went through those things. He, what does it say? He endured the cross, despising the shame. But, it doesn't say he rose again, but that's what it means when he says he sat down then at the right hand of the throne of God. That's his resurrection. And it's a reminder to you, guess what? You likewise have this future because of him. 
So you Hebrew Christians that want to cut and run because you don't like having to deal with the problems you're dealing with in life, you need to stop and fix your eyes back on Jesus Christ and get back on the race course again. Because guess what? He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it, in fact, the book of Hebrews several times, you can do a study in the book of Hebrews just looking at how many times it refers or references the suffering of Christ and the effect on him and how you and I can learn to respond to our sufferings. And the thing is, for all of us, to my knowledge in this here, none of us know what it's like to suffer to the degree that Christ suffered, or much less what it was like for these early Christians to suffer that, to whom Paul's writing. So fix your eyes. Remember, you've got a Savior that suffered, but now he's resurrected and he's seated up there, and that is your ultimate hope. Because you too are granted to sit up there with the Father because of who Jesus Christ is because God sees us seated in him, and we're going to have that privilege as we look to the future. So, before we go back to our final verse, I want to go over to John chapter 14. This is going to be important. This is a lead-in. Hopefully, try to remember this one. If you forget these other things, remember this one, because this will be a lead-in when we're, when we're back in two weeks. Next week, we'll be gone, and uh, Jim will be sharing uh, the word with you because we're going to be over taking care of little grandkids, but in John chapter 14 and verse 19, as Jesus is looking forward to his death and his departure and all of this, he says in verse 19, after a little while, the world will behold me no more. Why? Because, well, he's going to die. He's going to rise, and he's not going to show himself to the world. He's going to show himself to some believers. But then he's going to leave altogether, go back to heaven. But you will behold me. And then he says, because... I live, you shall live also. Because we have a Savior that lives, he's able to give us life. We actually have two kinds of life, just in a nutshell. You are counted in Christ to have resurrection life. That's life related to the human nature of the Son. But because the Son is also God, he also dwells in us and we have eternal life. So we've got both. We've got both resurrection life and we have eternal life, God's kind of life. Because he lives, you will live also. Because he lives, we have life. We have both of those. And they're connected with one of the reasons that we get to see him. So let's go back as we close this off then today. In, in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 20, where we started. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. It says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord. And he says he has brought him back up from the dead. Why did these, why does Paul say this here at the end as he's, as he's talking about this and asking for this? Because these believers need to remember, yeah, our suffer did, our, our, excuse me, our Savior did die. And it doesn't call him Savior here, it calls him shepherd, which is what we're going to come back next time and look at. Why is he referred to as shepherd? Why doesn't he call him high priest here? Why doesn't he call him savior here? Why does he call him shepherd? And guess what? It's going to have something to do with life when we come back. And we're going to see that being shepherd has something to do with life and him sharing life with us. We have a savior that lives. I know I'm preaching to the choir. We believe in the, the fact that we have a living savior. He lives today. And it's not like the song, I, I serve a living Savior, he's in the world today, and I see him. And because it's, it's because I know, because the Bible tells me he sits at the Father's right hand. He's resurrected. He gives us access into the presence of God.
grants us that access as our high priest. And he shares life with us. And that's something for us to remember, not just once a year as we are approaching Resurrection Sunday here in a couple weeks, but it's something every day of the year that we ought to be remembering. In fact, oftentimes throughout the day, remembering that we are alive. Thursday. I wasn't supposed to be playing in the dirt because of that. Let's just call it the owie on my leg right now, which happened because I was stupid a couple weeks ago. But uh, I was under the house digging in the dirt, trying to trace the line out that Jeremy said the line goes that way. So now we're trying to figure out where it is, and I'm underneath there. And that dirt is hard under there. Man, I'm chipping away at that dirt. And you don't have much space. I mean, you got, you're crowded in like this, and you're... And you try to dig down, you got to dig down about that far to find where this pipe is. And every once in a while, there's a part of me that's kind of going, oh, that's not what I want to be doing on my Thursday afternoon. Oh. And then I'd say, wait a second, God, you, you planned this. I can be thankful for this. You planned, you allow this in my life. There's a reason I can rest in you. Because even though I'm laying in the dirt, digging in this thing, I am at the same time, I'm seated at your right hand in Christ. Because he lives. And you know what? My attitude just did a 180. And it's like, just keep doing it. Ten minutes later, I have to go through that whole thing again because now I'm grumping and grousing about this. I'm just sharing with you a practical point of view. I, on a very practical level, had to apply this to myself this week with regard to some of these things. And I, I trust some of you also had to apply this, these kind of truths to yourself in perhaps different situations this week. But maybe you're going to have some situations in the coming week where you're going to have to remember, I'm a living Savior, which means I'm seated at the Father's right hand because of that and enjoy that benefit. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together and we're thankful for the fact that your son came into the world, laid down his life in place of our sins, that he was buried and he rose again and that you offer us salvation simply through faith in him that you offer us the forgiveness of sins. And we're thankful that because he lives, we have access to your presence. What a gracious thing. We don't earn that right to come to you. He's the one that earned it for us. We just have to enjoy it, take advantage of it. So we're thankful for this time. Ask that we might be encouraged from your word today. And uh, whatever you have in store for us this day and the week ahead of us, we ask that we might do so remembering that every moment we can sit at your right hand and talk to you because of your son's life today. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.